Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Dr. Earl Wright II, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Uh, thank you, Paul. I'm uh, honored to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I, I guess we should mention that you and I connected through uh, Dr. Ed Wallace, and, and you guys met, I assume, at the University of Cincinnati. That is correct. We were hired together in 2010 as part of the same cohort in the Department of Africana Studies at UC. So, yes, a very close and dear friend of mine. Right on. And, and now you're at Rhodes College back home where you grew up, right? That is correct. Um, a 20-year journey around the country, <laughs> um, primarily the southern states, but now I'm back home and uh, enjoying being around family. What was it like growing up in Memphis? Oh, wow. Uh Exciting, uh, complex, thrilling, all the above for someone like myself. Um, it was a very interesting time in many respects to grow up in Memphis. Born in 1971 and a few years later, of course, um, Elvis Presley would pass away. A couple of years before I was born, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed here. Yeah. So with that whole interaction and, and um, kind of history taking place here. It was the center of the universe for a minute, at least as I understood it in my small little uh, world in North Memphis. Yeah, uh, North Memphis, What is it known for anything? That part of town? Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of nefarious things, I'll say. Uh -huh. uh, North Memphis is one of the more rugged, types of the city, similar to a South Side Chicago or Harlem in New York City or South Central in Los Angeles. It's not for the faint of heart, but it is a place that can really develop you as a strong mind, strong-willed person, regardless of gender, regardless of orientation. Um, you will have to find that steel in yourself to go about um, becoming successful or trying to make yourself successful at a minimum. Yeah, so I I imagine uh, at some point you figured out that uh, education was really really important. Who was who are some of the influences to you? Because obviously you have a PhD in sociology now. Uh, that doesn't just happen. You have to put in a ton of effort. But I imagine you had some influence along the way. I did, and actually it's um a bit of a story to get to where I began to take school seriously. So I'll just start at the beginning, and you can interrupt me where um, you feel um, needed. I grew up in a one-parent household, just my mother and myself. Uh, father was absent. And my mother, she, um, God bless her soul, she passed away in 2020 at the beginning of the COVID outbreak of dementia and Alzheimer's, and I was her caregiver towards the end of her life there. But she was a hard worker, and she would do whatever it took for her son to be taken care of. Again, one-parent family. She was a registered nurse. And as a registered nurse in Memphis at that time, the amount of money that she earned was decent, but compared to the bills that she had, it was barely enough for us to survive. So there were many nights when, if I had dinner, it would be a grilled cheese sandwich, and that would be a luxury. Sometimes it would be toast, sometimes cereal. But she would always work as hard as she could to make sure that at least the basics in my life were met. Because of that, she never really had time to focus on my education. Mm. 
she would always encourage me, you know, go ahead and study, do the best you can. I want you to graduate and all these things. But in terms of sitting down and actually doing the work with me, she was non-existent. And also because of my background and, and my mother, she was 23 when she gave birth, uh, when she birthed me. She was like most 23 year olds uh, coming off of a divorce in which she had been the victim of domestic abuse. Mm. She wanted to find happiness. So I spent a lot of time living with my grandparents and my aunt, my, my grandmother's sister. They lived on the same street, maybe four houses apart from each other in this area of town called Hollywood in North Memphis. So they were uh, great caregivers, my grandparents as well as my aunt, but neither one of them just really, really stressed the idea of education. Of course, go do your homework, do your, um, um, I want you to pass to the next grade, but nothing just overburdensome. This pattern continued until high school. And in high school, I found the motivation for myself. By this time, I'm living with my mother full time and not necessarily going from grandparents' house and aunt's house. And the only reason I graduated high school is because at that time, there was this academic rule or athletic rule called Prop 48. And in order to, to be, uh, remain eligible for sports in Tennessee, you had to have at least a 2.0. And I was a great football player and a pretty decent track athlete. If it were not for my interest in football and track, then I would not have graduated high school. Fortunately, I was a well, I played one year of high school football. Everyone knew and I knew I was the best wide receiver in North Memphis and in my mind in the Mid-South region. But because I was five, six, five, seven, maybe 140 pounds, I was uh, a little bit intimidated about going out there and playing on what we had at the time, one of the top 10 uh, high schools in football in the state. Mm. Played one year of high school football and was able to garner a scholarship to Kentucky State University, small HBCU in Frankfort, Kentucky. I was, I still didn't take school seriously. In my mind, this is just a, a way station on my way to the NFL where I would become a millionaire and be the next Jerry Rice and uh, Drew Pearson and Lynn Swan, all my favorite idols. Well, I played for two years and I was HBCU All-America honor Honorable Mention after my sophomore year. But there was one problem. And that problem was I majored in football and I minored in partying. Yes. So after my second year, my sophomore year, the way I like to phrase it is I was asked to leave Kentucky State University. Um, in short, I flunked out a 0 0.7 GPA. Wow. Had to return home to Memphis with my tail between my legs. Um, but I still wanted to play football, still had that, that burning desire. But I was um, unable to get a fair shot, what I believed anyway, to play wide receiver at the University of Memphis because they had these two guys in front of me that I'm sure no one has heard of before. Uh, one is called Russell Cop Copeland, who was drafted, I believe, third or fourth round by the Buffalo Bills a couple of years later. And this other guy, one or two people may have heard of him um, by the name of Isaac Bruce, uh, <laughs> wide receiver, uh, St. Louis Rams. So it was while I was being ignored on that playing field that I thought, hmm, maybe I should take this school thing a bit serious. And although I began to take school seriously then, by then my junior year at the University of Memphis, I was still doing the bare minimum. And the way that I entered sociology is 
I only had I only took one sociology course in my undergraduate career. It was an introduction to sociology course taught by Elizabeth Higginbotham, uh, one of the more well-respected, well-known well names in the discipline. And I don't know what it was she saw in me, but at the end of that semester, she said, I want you to apply for um, the master's program in sociology at the University of Memphis. Yeah. At that time, all I wanted to do was coach high school football and teach history back in my alma mater, Tresman High School. But she was persistent. So I said, OK, I'm going to go ahead and apply just to get this laid off my back. And at the same time, I applied to the education program at the University of Memphis so I could become certified as a high school teacher. The only reason I went into sociology and not education is because I received uh, a fellowship in sociology. I did not receive one in education. So even still, I said, OK, I'll let me go into this graduate program in sociology, still not giving it my all. And it was finally after my second year as an MA student at the University of Memphis, when I was uh, beginning to understand W.E.B. Du Bois, Black sociology, and the significance of that catalog of research, that is when I finally began to take school seriously. And that was the moment that I finally pushed myself to be um, the scholar that I am today. So, so W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, he was a prolific writer. Uh, he, he was a prolific sociologist. Uh, he lived a long time. He, he lived to be, what, 94, 95 years old. Um, I, I want to come back and talk about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois um, in a little bit. I, I love the sport of football. Uh, so you said you were five, six or five, seven. Is that your current height, roughly? No, right now I'm about 5'10", five, 5'11". Five, okay, so when you were in college, you were 5'10", five, 5'11". Five, Correct. Okay, you weren't 140 pounds anymore. By then, I was around 175, 180. Okay. Uh, and so football wide receiver, you have to be tough, right, because you're focused on catching the ball, not preventing a, a hard hit. And so you, I imagine you took a few hard hits in your day. You also have to be extremely coordinated, hands and eyes uh, and feet. And you also have to have some sort of athletic talent, whether it's uh, agility, quickness, or speed, or all of the above. Uh, wh what was your superpower as a wide receiver out of all those things? Or were you basically really good at all those? <laughs> I'd like to think I was good at all of them. But the ones I was praised the most for or recognized the most for were my hands. And this was the pre-glove era or at the start of the glove era. And that's why I, I just lament a lot of these catches I see the guys making the NFL now and in college with a glove. I'm like, you know, no, that's not the greatest catch ever. Do it with a bare hand and then you'll garner my respect. But my hands were the main thing. Any ball within three yards of me left, right, I'm going to get it, whether it's diving, jumping in the air, getting undercut or what have you. And then the toughness. I prefer to go through the middle, catch short slants, uh, take one hit, bounce off someone and keep going. I wasn't the fastest guy in the world, but just like Jerry Rice, who ran um, theoretically a four or five, four or six, but no one ever caught him from behind. And that's how I viewed myself. Yeah, J Jerry Rice is a great guy to uh, emulate for sure if you're playing wide receiver. He's, he's the best of all time. Uh, and, and it's funny, you and I are roughly the same age. I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, I played football through high school. I played a little tight end. Uh, 
more quarterback actually. So I never had to worry about going over the middle once I became quarterback. And uh, I, it was amazing to me because when I was playing rec football, I think this is probably true for you too. Stickum was a thing, but you weren't supposed to use it. Right. Correct. I mean, that was illegal. And now they're wearing gloves that are 10 times as good at catching a ball that Stickum ever was. Correct. And I tried to stick them when I was in college, but for me, it just did not feel right. For one, your hands would, you know, get stuck together. But I just I just preferred that natural feel of the leather on my hands. But yes, stick them was the thing with uh, Lester Hayes, I believe, who made it famous with Oakland Raiders. And arguably the hardest hitting guy to ever play football. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Did you ever get a chance to see Jerry play in person? No, I did not. Yeah, I didn't either. I wish I had. I missed him by a couple of years. The legend is that Mississippi Valley State came to Frankfurt to play Kentucky State, and that's the game I believe Jerry Rice caught six touchdown passes (laughs) (laughs) about three years before I arrived there. Wow. Uh, Frankfurt, Kentucky, that's the capital, right? Correct. Why is it the capital? It's, It's not really much of a place, is it? What I understand about the placement of state capitals is that they're looking for the most centrally located big city or medium-sized city in the state. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Did you enjoy your time at Memphis? As an undergraduate, I and graduate student, yes, I did. Very much so. I really needed to come home just to ground myself, to center myself, to become refocused. Even had I stayed at Kentucky State and not um, flunked out, I probably would still be in Kentucky State, in, well, in Frankfurt, in the city, just working a regular, hard nine to five like most Americans. But just by uh, fate and the way I phrase it, things work out the way they're supposed to work out. Just by happenstance, I'm here now. Yeah, and, you're, and to the point you made earlier, you're you're with uh, family and, and friends that you've known for for decades. Correct. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've i always loved this, the t- city of Memphis, but I've only visited a handful of times and certainly haven't lived there. What's the name of the place? It's got the red and white awnings. Uh, the, the, the ribs are unbelievably good, the dry ribs, and they've got a special rub for them. Uh, probably the Rendezvous. Yes, Rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend the Rendezvous, or are there some uh, smaller, less-known restaurants you would recommend? Probably. Particular? Yeah, probably a smaller it's a relatively well-known place throughout the country called Cozy Corner okay. with, the K, with the K. And the best, it's not a chain, just one spot there around Midtown Memphis. And it is a great location, has the best ribs in town. And it's a place where locals frequent as well as international guests that are often there. What is it about athletes that, uh, a lot of athletes want to coach. Uh, and that, look, I was a history major. I, my idea when I graduated college was I was going to teach history at a high school and I was going to be the ball coach. That's what I wanted to do. But it, it, it just never really uh, happened for various reasons. I won't bore you with my story. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like your intro to sociology professor plus the inspiration of W.E.B. Du Bois really led you to uh, a, a path in sociology that has lasted uh, for quite a a long time. And it sounds like it'll last your entire career and maybe beyond. Exactly. And the way I frame it is that this is my life's work. 
And it's like a light bulb went off. I remember exactly where I was in 1996. I was at the at the University of Memphis in the library in the tower. I believe the seventh or eighth floor, which is where the E indexes were. And I'm reading this material and I'm just fascinated by what I'm reading about W.E.B. Du Bois, but also his colleagues at Atlanta University, HBCU at the time. Well, it's now known as Clark Atlanta University. And I'm processing this information, but I'm thinking about what I'm learning in the classroom every day. And my instructors are telling me about the wonders and the tremendous accomplishments of the University of Chicago and those sociologists, predominantly white institution, of course, in Chicago, Illinois. But the date that they're giving for the accomplishments of Chicago sociologists are 1915, 1920, supposedly the first to do fill in the blank. And I'm looking through the Du Bois readings and I'm saying, well, these are similar types of research studies. But Du Bois, it says 1896. It says 1905. Why are we not talking about W.E.B. Du Bois? Why are we not talking about these historically black colleges? And I guess I've had a love for HBCUs my entire life. I mentioned earlier that for a certain period of my life, I lived with or between my grandmother's house and my aunt's house. Well, my aunt also took care of her grandchildren. They're about 10 years older than me. And one went to Jackson State University, an HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. So from an early age, I was just thrown into HBCU culture and have always had this love, respect, admiration for them. But even more so, something that defines me is my love for, appreciation for, and steadfast defense of the American South, principally in defense of individuals, institutions that tend to demean, belittle, um, dismiss those of us from the South for a number of reasons, whether it's our accent, the way we talk, the supposed lack of intelligence based upon the way we talk, so all these things began to come together. My love for the South, love for HBCUs, trying to find out where the black people are in sociology. And it was the perfect storm. And for the last, I completed my degree in the year 2000, but I started this work in 1996. Um, but I just count from 2000 when I finished my degree. So for the last 23, going on 24 years, this has been my life's passion. As you said, it will be my passion, not only till I'm dead, but till I'm, um, but for infinity, because my work is out there. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, so I, I, this is a fun question. I, <clears throat> at least it's fun for me. I, I, I'm an army guy, and I so you end up uh, being around people from all over the the country. And I was taught by my my parents that when you go indoors, you take your hat off. And so the the army does that as well. Uh, but when you're in civilian clothes and you take your hat off, they're like, "Oh, you must be from the south." Well, I was at this school with two guys from Mississippi. And I took, and I'm from Richmond, Virginia. I took my hat off, and they're like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I, it's etiquette to take your hat off when you're indoors." And they're like, "But you're from Virginia." I'm like, "That's the South too, man. We 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 kind of all grew up with the same sort of uh, societal rules, I think, mm -hmm. and and the, the way of uh, politeness being really really important." Um, and so, anyway, I, Memphis is not far from Northern Mississippi, right? Uh, and it's. I, I would consider, and you tell me, Memphis is part of the Deep South? Yes. And jokingly say that Memphis is the capital of North Mississippi. 
because <laughs> we're right there at the intersection, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee. Yeah, right. So is uh, Virginia part of the South? Yes, most definitely. Everything from Washington, D.C., including D.C., down, including Miami, who likes to think of themselves as East Coast more so than the American South. But I lived in Orlando for about four years. And yes, Florida is definitely the South, regardless of which part of the state you're in. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so let's talk about what you love about the South. Oh, just everything, the culture, um, whether it's the culture of New Orleans, the culture um, um, of, of Nashville with country music, with Fisk University, where I, used to, where I worked for a couple of years, and gospel music. There are just so many things to appreciate about it. Just the, the style. The South has its own particular style of dress, style of speaking, um, just food, uh, Cajun, barbecue. Oh, my goodness. And just a good Southern fried uh, dishes that we make. It's just many, many things. Uh, it's funny. We could probably talk about music for a long time. There's a ton of music, whether it's blues and I would even say bluegrass is a Southern thing. It's it, mm -hmm. it feels like it's more Kentucky, and you could argue Kentucky's South or not the South. But uh, R and B in general, uh, country music. There's just so much rich, uh, really enjoyable music to listen to, and and they've all kind of learned from each other and and made each of those uh, musical disciplines richer for that. Exactly, exactly. And you, you hear that in a lot of the popular artists' work. And just as a point of um, information, during my years in Cincinnati, I would always tell them that, yes, Cincinnati is the northernmost southern city in the country. So definitely Kentucky's in the south, but so is Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati's right there on the Ohio River, and it's uh, northern Kentucky is just across the river to the south there. And there are like 58 different little towns right across there, but they're all Cincy Metro, right? Exactly. And I lived in northern Kentucky while I worked in Cincinnati. What was the name of the town you lived in? <laughs> a small town called Independence. <laughs> well, you would expect a small town like uh, to be called Independence, especially that part of the world. Uh, yeah, and you could if you drove ten miles, you probably went through six or seven different little towns, right? Oh yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any place like it in the country. That part of Kentucky. Yes, yeah, I, I believe you're safe in saying that. Yeah, 58's a lot in that small part of uh, Kentucky like that. Mm -hmm. All right, so what, what was your um, your thesis on? You, ha you had to, I imagine, write a really long paper and, and defend it as part of your degree. Well, the thesis for the master's was on the black barbershop. Okay. And what I wanted to do was push back against the narrative that, and this is, keep in mind, the mid-90s, when most media are saying that one out of three black men are either in jail, about to go to jail, thinking about going to jail, going to do something to end up in jail. And for me, that was not my reality. Although I grew up in a poverty level uh, neighborhood track, I did was not exposed to those kind of deviant behaviors. So I did not want to contribute to this deficit model of research that was taking place. So my study at the MA level, my thesis focused on just friendship bonds between black males in the barbershop. When I transitioned to the University of Nebraska for the PhD, this is when I had already found W.E.B. Du Bois in the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory. 
one advantage that I had going into the doctor program is I knew from day one what I wanted to write about. So all of my energies were focused in that area. So my dissertation ended up being a declaration that W.E.B. Du Bois's Atlanta Sociological Laboratory and not the Chicago School of Sociology should be credited as being the most influential school of sociology in American history. Wow. Uh, that's that's a big uh, topic to take on. Correct. And um, I thought once I published my works and everyone would see that the works of Du Bois that had been overlooked for literally 100 years, they would recognize that a great injustice had occurred and the skies would part and the sun would come down and all would be well with the world. But my work fell upon deaf ears for about 15 years. Uh, and is that because the Midwest just wasn't ready for something like that? Or, or that or your community, the sociology community in general? Correct. The sociology community in general wasn't ready for it. And a good example is one year I presented this research at a conference with the basic argument that I laid out to you. And two longtime professors nearly came to fisticuffs about it. Uh, grown men, we're talking about 50 plus years of age. One of them happened to work at an HBCU. One of them worked at a flagship Southern based school. And I guess we can guess where their uh, allegiances laid, uh, lied. So yeah, it, it was not accepted. It, they thought it was just crazy, just anathema that these poorly funded institutions that were led by individuals, what, barely 30, 40 years removed from slavery, could accomplish anything equal to, let alone greater than, the well-resourced um, uh, Rockefeller family-funded University of Chicago. Yeah. So um, eventually people caught up with the work, and now it's pretty well ingrained into the discipline. Yeah, it's uh, mon money is a funny thing in a place like America. Capitalism allows money to lead to power, which leads to those who write the history books uh, and all kinds of things. Some of some of it's good. Some of it's uh, frankly causes communities to be to be lazy and not to do full inspections or sincere inspections. So I'm glad it's uh, it's more broadly accepted these days what was happening in Atlanta and, and what W.B. Du Bois and others were doing. Sounds like 20 years before the Chicago guys are doing anything. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, so WB Du Bois, I, I've, I have generally known about him since I was in college in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, but I don't have a deep understanding of him. W what was so attractive about his story that really caught your attention? Well, first the idea of the struggle that again, 30 years removed from slavery, and what they were actually trying to do and the resistance they had to put up with. For example, at Atlanta University, the school was constantly under threat by members of the local white community because they did not want these newly freed American citizens to be more educated than they were. <coughs> Excuse me. And another aspect of that is they understood sociology was an emancipatory uh, discipline. 
back to its origins, sociology really was based by two Southern lawyers who essentially wrote the first sociology textbooks. They wrote those books under this banner called Sociology of the South. And that was really a way to use the discipline as a means to continue slavery and or Jim Crow segregation. So the early sociologists viewed the discipline as a tool, a weapon to continue oppression. Mm. So here you have W.E.B. Du Bois and these black scholars understanding that, in fact, the discipline can be used as a tool for liberation under the assumption if we just gather enough data on race, then people will see that there are no differences between whites and blacks. There are only differences of experiences or social distance between us. It was so bad in Atlanta that the residents threatened to burn down the school and also to um, harass, assault, kill faculty, so much so that they had to teach around sociology. And that's the literal quote that Atlanta University officials uh, wrote in their bulletins of the day for because they feared if they just told the community what they were doing, oh my goodness, you know, we could be killed for this emancipatory discipline. So I'm always fascinated by that backstory, but also a lot of the things we take for granted now or that we attribute to scholars today. And, you know, we applaud them, we give them awards, but some of those were accomplished and created by Du Bois over 100 years ago. But when we look at the today's books, there's no recognition of him or people who work with him like Lucy Laney or Augustus Granville Deal. So, it's just the, the many different layers of how these individuals contributed to the discipline and social science and to this American experiment, but they haven't been sufficiently recognized. And that is what I view as my, my life's work and the task that I will take to me until I can no longer take a breath. Yeah, so there's been a, a lot of, um, I, I don't know, Earl, you and I are roughly the same age. Can, can I call you Earl? Sure, of course. Yep. Um, I assumed you'd be okay with that, but I had, mm -hmm. I had to ask. My mom would, would say it's polite to ask. Uh, exactly. It feels like since the murder of George Floyd, and of course, being under a pandemic when that happened was a contributing factor to protests that happened after that. But this whole notion that every white person is racist and, and therefore bad, and I say every, not every, but this narrative of white people are, are basically racist uh, and unless you 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 say all the right things that a particular group has said you have to say it, I've, I've never seen and i think this was happening back in the late 60s too mm -hmm. uh 68 in particular uh was a year very similar to i think how 2020 played out um where it, it feels like there are forces and groups of people that are trying to separate versus bringing together and i i don't remember because you and I, schools were integrated when you and I were coming through schools. Now, it may not have felt integrated, right, because there was a lot of things that happened within these school systems where they still had very white schools or still had very black schools. But at least legally, they, they had been integrated in most places when you and I were coming up. It, it feels like we were born into a pretty good spot. And I, I think it's generally gotten better over time. And I, and I mean, just how how society functions amongst itself. So whether you're Asian or white or black or whatever, it just feels like we were, we were doing just fine. And now I, I feel like maybe we're worse than it was in 68. So I, I'd love mm -hmm. to get your reaction to that. Does, does it go 
like that? Does it oscillate over time or does it generally improve or it just depends on what's going on in the world? Yeah, there are always ebbs and flows, I would argue, with any type of movement, whether that's for women's rights back in the day, sexual orientation today, um, LGBTQ issues since the Stonewall ride and beyond or earlier rather. But what I would posit in terms of using 1968 as a marker is that on, in one respect, many of us, not many of us, many people of that generation dropped the ball. For many in America, the belief was with the Civil Rights Acts that passed, with affirmative action uh, programs that were coming into place to make up for previous inequities, that it was game over. You know, slam the ball down in the end zone, let's go home, have a party, our work is done here. Without understanding that there were and continue to be forces that were adamantly against all of that progress and were not taking time to celebrate, but went into the laboratory and concocted different ways to achieve their end goals. Some of those may have been creative and strategic ways to keep people divided by race, class, gender, and other levels. So part of it is we dropped, uh, kept dropped the ball in one respect, but in another respect, especially when I hear you think, uh, when you say that we are potentially as um, separated today as we were in 68, we are now becoming just as segregated, literally, today as we were in the early 70s, based on the recent data. We're resegregating ourselves, especially if you look at school data. So for some individuals, the social distance between white uh, whites and blacks, blacks and Latinx, Latinx and Asian Americans, that gap has become, has increased over the past few decades. So the only people that many of us hang out with are those who are like-minded. So I, I would argue that it's not so much that individuals want to create these barriers between one another. Is that in, in some way, structurally, we just have this inability to see one another physically. And when we do, because the frustration, the challenges, the attempts to overcome past inequities has occurred so long that the time for explaining what the issue is here and now for this new generation is over. For them, you have we have these telephones that can give us all the information we need at the drop of a dime. So if you don't understand what the issue is, then they see you as part of the problem and not necessarily part of the solution. Yeah, and some of that problem is is legitimate, and, and those that those parts of the of I'll call it the issue set certainly need to be addressed. But some of it's manufactured for the sake of acquiring power, uh, and I don't fully understand it. It makes my head hurt when when the topic of power comes up. Uh, but it, it feels like there are a lot of uh, forces in the background that are just trying to manipulate and obfuscate just for the sake of uh, gaining more power. But I, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what entities are behind the scenes doing that. Uh, I know those entities exist. I, I, there's evidence of that all around. All right, I'm, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Your, your, your uh, master's thesis on the black barbershop. Uh, this is going to sound strange, but I have 
and I, I'm not trying to sound like I'm special or important by saying this, but I've always been a person who says, I'm going to go hang out with people that have had different life experiences than me. When I was in high school, I would bounce around to all the cliques. I didn't have, I wasn't in a clique. I was just bouncing amongst them. And I, I appreciated uh, the different sets of experiences that I would run into versus just hanging out with people that grew up the way I did. Uh, and so I, I had it in my mind that I was going to go to a Korean barbershop, a Dominican barbershop, a black barbershop in New Jersey. And so when I walked into that black barbershop, I imagined the experience that I had was very different than, than the experience you have going into a black barbershop. It got re really quiet when I walked in, Earl. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> uh, lot, lots of reasons I can imagine. But what's what's the black barbershop experience like, at least the parts that you, you feel comfortable talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, it's like uh, other social spaces where primarily men hang out. It's very hyper-masculine. Um, um, yeah, yeah, hyper-masculine. But, but also, what the reason I wanted to study that space is because when I'm looking at the literature, when I'm looking at these scholarly writings about Black people in Black places or place-making, as Zandria Robinson and Marcus Anthony Hunter call it, it's always from this space of what is wrong with black people. And that's what I want to get away from, from, from again, the deficit narrative. And it's a stories of, okay, you come from this lived experience like I did. How, how did you survive? How were you able to become successful just on whatever uh, skill you want to just success? But what was your story and narrative? So in this way, it's not necessarily that it's a situation where the subject matter is necessarily comfortable or even has been mined and discussed or studied thoroughly. But it's a space that really puts um, a living body and face to an entity that for some are not viewed as legitimate living entities. Mm. Uh, I've watched a little bit. Of, I think LeBron's got a show I've been watching in a while that I think it's called Barbershop or something like that. And so I, I got to say, it's also a very fun place, right? A, a jovial place. Uh, uh, it's a place where you hear stories. Um, and, and for most of humanity, most of, most of mankind's time on earth, uh, that's how history was passed on was through storytelling. Right. And I, I think the barbershop was part of that, um, for more than just the black community, I think a lot of communities, but especially so it sounds like in the black community. Oh yeah, definitely so. And I remember a quote one of my respondents had, and I used it as a title of one of my papers. And it's called From the Common Thug to the Local Businessman. Because in the barbershop, you see everyone, every walk of life, every class position, um, everything. And in my study, you really saw how people made a way out of no way even if that no way or even if that making a way could be perceived as deviant by some. Uh, for example, there was an underground economy that took place and I broke it down into three categories. Those categories that were legal, which would be someone who stand outside and ask if you wanted your car washed while you got your hair cut. Uh, some quasi legal where someone would come in with maybe some socks or 
small types of clothing that you think, well, maybe they got this at, you know, bargain place like Sam's Wholesale or something like that. And they're just selling it. And there were obviously illegal things taking place. For example, one story that I record in my uh, article is behind the barbershop. There would be a there was a train track and this train happened to carry Nike shoes. And on occasion, this train would stop in this particular community. And on occasion, that train would be vandalized. And within a week or two, uh, some hustlers would come into the shop selling brand new Nike shoes for the not so Nike cost. So um, anything and anything you want in the barbershop is there. Uh, so as a sociologist and an American and a Southern American, what do you think the American society's biggest challenge we need to overcome to, to be in a better place? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was thinking about this question recently. And for me, it is simple civic literacy. Mm. <laughs> Too many of us do not know the basic, simple fundamentals of how government, how politics operate. And for many of us, our frustration is born out of that ignorance defined as lack of knowing, um, not the the, uh, the negative meaning of ignorant. Yeah. Um, if we simply knew how things worked, then we could channel our frustrations into more positive actions as opposed to placing blame on individuals or entities for things they have not done when in fact that is not their purview anyway. Yeah, it's uh, education in this country is a strange thing. It seems very obvious to me as a as a 54-year-old guy who has kids that the school system, the, the taxes that pay for that school system, my taxes, your taxes, you would think they would do things like let's teach personal finance, financial accountability. Let's mm -hmm. teach, to your point, civics in a way where it's, it's really powerful and meaningful. And, and people, to your point, can see, hey, here's a path to make positive, productive change. It's just there are parameters that you follow. There's, there's steps that you follow. And you, too, can get to a better place and not feel like you're being victimized mm -hmm. or that, that somehow you're being victimized. You're right. Ignorance is... Uh, yeah, wow. I, I, what's the best way to address that, do you think? Well, I'd like to say education, but, but once individuals are aged out of the formal education system, then it falls upon their willingness to voluntarily become open-minded to learning and processing new information. But as you may know, sometimes when we become of a certain age, we are less likely to listen to others or to even entertain new ideas and thoughts that may be contrary to what we already believe for fear that it may just destroy the foundation of what we believed in for X amount of years. So I'd like to say education, but I believe we really have to break down these walls between us. And in many ways, one can make the argument that there needs that, that were it not for race and race issues, that a class-based 
uh, collaboration between Americans would be the impetus for this type of new understanding beyond racial lines and class lines and other types of lines. But because we're so focused on race and you know, I don't like this group, this group doesn't like that group, then we're not able to come together as a strong um, unified entity to push for challenges to make the education system better, to push for higher wages in certain occupations. But we're constantly fighting one another at the bottom level while those who have the means um, retain those means. Well, and they're laughing while they do it. Correct. It's almost too easy for the, for them. Uh, yeah, you said a couple things there. One is this notion of the education system does what it does. You retain whatever you're going to retain. Um, I, I would argue we could put forth a better effort in the first uh, 13 years of education on civics mm -hmm. and topics related to that. But as I think you know, the male brain in particular doesn't really fully develop until age 25. And, mm -hmm. and there's this weird thing that if it happened to you, music's a great example. Most people's musical tastes were formed when they were 15 to 25. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, it's ironic, I think, for a lot of people, especially men, at the age of 25, not only did your brain fully function, you now stop listening. Are you not fully functioning? It's fully developed, and you also stop listening. It's a, it's a, uh, doesn't make it easy for us to knock down walls and get to a better place together. Correct. I agree. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think this podcast and other forms of media like this uh, can do its own small part, but I don't know. Is government the answer? Uh, do the people need to rise up and, and figure out the answers? I, I, I don't know what where that answer comes from. I'm, I'm not a big fan in believing in the government because the government's done a lot of really bad things mm -hmm. and not just, our, not just the American government over the last 200 plus years. And trust me, there are plenty of examples of the American government doing really bad things, but I think it's true of governments in general. Uh, so I don't tend to look to the government. So, I mean, where should we be looking? Are there, are there civic organizations, charitable organizations that we should also maybe think about tapping into to get to a better place? Yeah, I believe it's a both and situation. And without necessarily identifying one particular organization, I just point to the past. I was an undergraduate history major uh, like yourself. And to me, the past is prologue. And with every successful social movement, there have been a critical mass of individuals, but also influential organizations and institutions pushing the government for change. And I'm reminded of the quote to paraphrase it. I believe that um, Lyndon Baines Johnson told Martin Luther King Jr. about Civil Rights Act. Um, to paraphrase me, he said, well, make me pass the Civil Rights Act. Put pressure on me. Put pressure on us. Mm. So it has to be a ground up effort. Otherwise, and because that those are the individuals who understand how the policy should be molded, whether it's the K through 12 program, whether it's um, financial literacy in high school and in middle school, because I remember as you were talking, I remember in middle school, once a week, we would take 30 minutes out of our day and a guy would come in and we would uh, um, uh, choose stocks and bonds. Uh, how many do you want to how many shares do you want to do this week? How many do you want to do next week and all of that stuff? But that that's a ground up type of proclamation for the citizens to demand that these are the skills we need. 
and privilege those over just what test score did you meet in order for the school to not lose money, the teacher to get a raise or not get a raise, and all these other metrics. Yeah, and those metrics uh, in practice, in, in many cases, don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> you and I both have coughing fits tonight. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a good reminder, the, the way you, you describe that, it effectively takes all of us, whether it's individuals with ground swells or institutions that need to play their part. Uh, and you're right, uh, things don't get done unless pressure is applied um, mm -hmm. consistently and in a powerful way mm -hmm. over over years in, in many cases or decades, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, so let's go back to football because I, I love football. Do you have a favorite NFL team? Well, of course, the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, Earl. Why is that, of course? Because they were awesome when you were a kid, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and when I was a kid, we had three television stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Were you the remote control like I was? You had to go up to the TV and turn the dial? Exactly. <laughs> And in Memphis, there were two games on every week or two teams on every week, the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And because yeah, my relative loved the Cowboys, I had to hate the Cowboys and I became a Steeler fan. No, I'm uh, yeah, I grew I grew up watching the NFL. I grew up in commander territory. We call it Redskins back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that history is what it is. Um, I couldn't stand the the Redskins or the Cowboys back in the day, and I my favorite color was orange. And Tampa Bay came in the league in '76, and I've stuck yeah. with them ever since. It's been a really miserable existence. At least, like Tomlin as an example, uh, he he's never had a losing season. Correct. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. The fact the fact that the Steelers can go back to the early '60s and they've only had three coaches that entire time. Yep. That's yep. crazy. It's like, yeah. So what? So I get that uh, there were only two teams that came on every week, and Steelers being one of them. But they were a fun team in the seventies. They were a really fun team. Very much so. Uh, Franco Harris, Jim Blair, uh, Lambert, all those guys. Mill Blunt, Ham yes. Swan, mm -hmm. Stallworth. Yep. Uh, of course, you can't forget Terry Bradshaw, quarterback. Exactly. But that's the thing, uh, especially with that, those Steelers teams in the seventies. They struck me as a, as, a, as a wonderful melting pot, and I think that's true for sports in general, uh, mm -hmm. especially in this country. Football and basketball has been where a lot of cultures come together, and they, and they learn how to uh, be great teammates to each other. They understand the value of uh, teamwork and sportsmanship and all the other lessons you can learn from team sports like that. There have to be other things besides football and basketball where this country can find ways to come together. Uh, true, true. Often we find it in the entertainment arena. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the movie Ray Charles, the Ray, well, the movie Ray, based on the life of Ray Charles, and how he would not perform at certain venues in the South if they were segregated. So entertainment is what brings us together in many respects. And even what 20 some odd years before NFL quarterbacks became a thing. The Pittsburgh Steelers, the, the quarterback that should have been leading them to those Super Bowls was an HBCU graduate uh, from Tennessee State University, Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam. But he had his own personal demons that he could not overcome. Mm. And he was the starting quarterback in front of Bradshaw. So had he been able to manage his demons, who knows what the fate of the black quarterback could have been prior to the 1990s. But sports, 
entertainment. Um, these are the areas that provide the greatest opportunities for um, this interaction to occur. Yeah, and the Rooney family, I, I think they didn't care whether the quarterback, starting quarterback was black or white. And they were way ahead of their time uh, for the NFL, that's for sure. Correct. Is your is your college team Memphis? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. I, I guess it has to be. You went there, right? For better or worse, it is. <laughs> Although I went to the University of Nebraska and I was there when we won two championships, I could never become a, a Cornhusker fan. Yeah, they're a tough team to root for, man, going back to the 70s. I've always had a tough time rooting for them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Memphis basketball is making a comeback, right? Aren't they? They're going to be really nice this year, I think. They will be. Uh, we should have been ranked this week, but neither the coaches poll nor the uh, writers deemed us worthy. But we should make the tournament again this year. Penny's got a, Penny's got a good thing going. Mm -hmm. yes. I'm, really glad, I'm really glad he came back to, to Memphis. Yes, we are too. He was able to get some of the kind of high caliber players that John Calipari was able to get, although not as many, but still relative to where Memphis is for an American Conference club. He's doing a great job. How many students are at Memphis, roughly? About 25,000, 23,000. So big, but not massive. Correct. Yeah. All right. So tell me about Rhodes College. Rhodes College, small liberal arts institution in Midtown Memphis. And actually, when I was born, my first seven years, I grew up about maybe five minutes from campus. Huh. And I remember walking by that campus hundreds of times, driving by it hundreds of times. And I've told my colleagues since I've been there, I've been there three years now, that place literally could have could have been halfway on the moon as far as I was concerned. That's how far or near I thought I was to it. It was just unimaginable. That's where, quote unquote, white kids went to school. So it was invisible to us. And to think that all these years later, um, this uh, scrawny, um, under uh, impoverished kid who grew up in poverty five blocks away or five minutes away, is now at this elite institution is quite something. I mean, the, the odds of that are crazy to think about, right? That yes, very much so, and I think about that often. Uh, so, go from today out another thirty years. Do you think there are other kids that, who have that opportunity to come out of not so great uh, parts of town socioeconomically that can eventually reach the heights of a PhD? and being a professor at a college like that? Oh, without question, without question. It's about being prepared for the opportunity when it arises, but also having the skills that are necessary. And sometimes you just need intervention, a little luck. I in no way, shape or form believe that it was because of my own uh, intellectual acuity and brilliance that I was somehow able to lift myself up by my bootstraps and do all these wonderful things. Uh, Singularly, it was not that I happened to be in the right place at the right time on many occasions, and I happened to be prepared for that moment on many occasions. And I am convinced that there are many others who can have the same level of success, but even more greater success, because I in no way, shape or form was the smartest 
um, intelligent, however you want to define smartness and all these things, person in my neighborhood. I know that without without a doubt. But I was presented with opportunities. Some of them were not presented with. I was prepared, whereas some of them were not prepared. So in many respects, sometimes it's a matter of fate. Yeah, it's a matter of fate. But to your point, it's also you. you when you say prepared, I think that means uh, some passive things. But it also means you had a willingness to lean into whatever that opportunity was. And a lot, of, a lot of people of any background, of any ethnicity or culture, uh, just don't lean into things. It's something that I try to uh, teach my kids. Like, hey, when you when you have opportunity in front of you, don't shy away from it. Lean in, and and you're going to make mistakes, and that's okay, because you're you're going to learn from those mistakes, and you're going to be more resilient because of it. Um, so, what are you working on these days? Because you, I imagine you both you, you teach and you do research. What are you researching these days? Well, I'm about to start a new research project on just the history of American sociology and focus principally on the American South. I've looked at HBCUs from Atlanta University, now Clark Atlanta University, Fisk University, Tuskegee and Howard. But now I want to see what was going on in the parallel worlds at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Mm. what was taking place at the University of Mississippi and Emory University, all these other at least at that time, high ranking, uh, predominantly white institutions in their departments and pretty much compare, contrast and just develop a more holistic history of the origin of the discipline. I think you're going to have fun learning how different those uh, those (laughs) environments were. Yes. So what's the history of HBCUs? Uh, And I I should know this, but I want to hear and I could Google it, I guess, and get a, a high level answer. But my understanding of HBCUs, they are predominantly in the South. Correct. Right. I, I, there's, I think, one or two in Maryland. So certainly you have Howard in, in, in D.C. Right? Is it in D.C. or D.C. Metro? It's uh, in D.C. In D.C. And then you've got several in Virginia, several in North Carolina, and then just touch all the other uh, states that you and I would consider part of the South. Um, but not nothing really up north. And so was – Tell, tell me how HBCUs formed and, and why they're so prevalent in the South. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to our previous conversation, I would mark those Virginia and Maryland schools as being part of those HBCUs in the South. Now, if you want yeah, to say the would... deep, deep South, then, you know, that's another one. Right. But um, Lincoln University is where the first one was established um, up in Pennsylvania, uh, Lincoln and Cheney up in those areas. Okay. And then you have... Um, Oh my God, blanking on the name in Oklahoma, another HBCU. But predominantly, that's where the, the, the people were. And some of the schools were started by states. Um, a lot of them were started by missionary associations. Mm. And something unique that came out maybe two or three weeks ago, maybe two or three months ago, the study released by the White House that shows how HBUs have been underfunded to the tune of about two billion dollars to date. So when from, I think from, about, government. Hmm? from government, from state governments, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, un- unequal funding in state in Tennessee state in my home state of Tennessee, underfunded to the tune of one point, uh, no, three million dollars actually. So. They were established principally in the American South because that's where the population was. Uh, 
but also in the northern areas where there were abolitionist friendly spaces as well. And they were founded, many of them, on this idea of the social gospel, that you're going to use uh, religion as a way to bring about this emancipation and um, not diversity of the, the population, but uh, just the creation of a better society through religion and education, this idea of the social gospel. Yeah, I mean, I think that could be really powerful, and it has been really powerful for, mm-hmm. for a, lot, a lot of people. Uh, what what can I do to make the world a better place, Earl? Well, my um, baseline answer is just do the research. The research is out there for each and every person um, if they want it. And I'm thinking back to my lecture today in my theory class. We're reading this book called This Bridge Called My Back. It's one of the, if not the earliest, feminist theory book by women of color. Uh, Their name of it was third world women, we call it low income nations now. But one of the things, one of the arguments the author made was, a statement she made is that, and this is in 1979, she said this, I'm tired as a woman of color of teaching white Americans about issues of race. There's plenty of information out there, Mm. Um, plenty of resources. (laughs) We know what the issues are. So simply let's read the information out there and then try to form strategic coalitions around that. And to really sum it up, it's like the phrase that was taking place during the Black Lives Matter movement, the height of the movement. And it's that once individuals have this knowledge, this information, this understanding, or at least a base level understanding, then it's not about allyship. We need something stronger than that. We don't want allies. We want accomplices. With the the crux being, that means you're in the fox as a, a service person. Yeah. That means you're in the foxhole with them. You know, if you're taking if you're action the, instead of just saying, sure, I support you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, w- words are nice, but uh, deeds are certainly more powerful. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good answer. And and uh, the woman you referenced, she was saying that in 79 before the Internet, or at least before it was publicly available. And uh, yeah, she's basically saying, go read books and get to the library. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and take ownership of it because let's say if if someone comes to me and asks a, a white person asks, well, can you please explain why George Floyd happened and or these things? Then the assumption is that I have the, the emotional um energy, the physical energy to really go through that whole narrative um in ways that could be traumatizing or re-traumatizing, or if not, then maybe this is the fourth, fifth, tenth, twentieth time you've had to uh, be an educator, whether officially or unofficially. So, but if it's, that's why the information is there, but if it's for a point of clarification, that's a different kind of conversation. But if it's, uh, you're being approached to teach, then that that's a bit uh, daunting sometimes for some people. Yeah. You, uh, when you said that, it reminded me of uh, a friend of mine uh, who lives in Atlanta now. He, he and his wife and their three young sons, they're the only black family in this particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And when George Floyd, that, that murder happened, he said the entire neighborhood just kind of slowly walked towards their house because all the white people in the neighborhood had a bunch of questions. And he said it was the most exhausting two week period of his entire life. 
Wow. That sounds like my neighborhood in Independence, Kentucky. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine very similar. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, so talk about family real quick. When you say family, uh, who's in your family? Uh, just my wife of 20 years now, as of last Wednesday, 20-year anniversary of marriage. Congratulations. And our three children, um, 29, our oldest daughter, 21, my son, who's a junior in college at Loyola University in New Orleans. Okay. And my youngest daughter, who is um, 16 now, 11th grader. So she's about to join her brother in college somewhere. And prior to that, I think I mentioned before, my mother had been living with us for 10 years. Really, time we moved to Cincinnati in 2010 mm. um, because she got caught in the housing mortgage debacle of years ago that led to many people losing their homes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's really cool. Uh, what, what plans do you have for the future? Well, just to keep on putting out this great work as much as I can, as long as I can, and to try to transition into focusing more on the family and more downtime. I've been just full bore at it literally since 1996. I guess making up for those first 20 some odd years where I didn't take school seriously or take anything seriously or put my full effort into it. And when I found this, I just went at it hard and fast. And now that I see that um, I've accomplished, I'd say about 90 to 95% of what I wanted to accomplish writing, it's time to transition into other things and focus a lot more on family. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. So you're at Rhodes. Is it still predominantly a white? school oh very much so yeah so how many light bulbs do you see go off in a semester for your students oh my goodness um yeah, i say at least about 10 at, at least 10 a semester at least yeah. and, and i teach you, about a, a max of 30 to 35 students a semester it's about 10 a semester does that does that make you feel great when those light bulbs go off oh yes yes yeah. Because yes. that's what you're doing. That's that's what education is doing, right? It's, it's having light bulbs go off and maybe uh, influence people to go down a different path. That's, exactly. That's and that's why I do it. And I tell them on day one, my job is not to convince you to believe in anything. If you want to be a racist, a homophobe, a sexist, or ageist, whatever you want, I can help you do that because I can point you to data that's going to support whatever position you think you believe in. But what I do require is that when you look at the data, you do your research to see how valid, legitimate the data are. And if you can read the data, then I allow you to come to your own uh, rational decision about which one makes the most sense or makes sense, period. Well, uh, Earl, this has been a great conversation. I'm, I'm very happy uh, Ed connected the two of us. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best, man. You're, you're doing a really powerful work. Keep doing it. You think you're going to retire from Rhodes or should I should you not answer that question, given who, who might listen? Well, I'll, I'll answer it in the way that my former and late mentor, Thomas C. Calhoun, uh, trained me. There's nothing wrong with having a conversation with someone. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Well, it's been great. I, I've learned a, a bunch here, Earl, and I wish you nothing but the best, man. Appreciate you. Thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.